Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Today I'd like to talk about something that I believe is very precious, very close to God's heart, and it's very close to mine. I've entitled today's message, You're Amazing. I want to talk about God's thoughts towards you. In Psalm 139, verse 14 in the New King James, which I'll be using for the most part in uh, my message, it says, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows full well. Have you ever wondered what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made? Maybe it's referring to his gifts and his callings in me. Or that he created me with this amazing purpose. Even that he's equipped me with every good work to do. All these things are true. I've come to a realization that God's thoughts regarding us far surpass the best thoughts that we could ever imagine about ourselves. And the same is true of this verse. We look at the original languages in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the word fearfully there, it's the word yare in the Greek or in the Hebrew, which can mean fear, be afraid, or revere. Now, actually, this word can be understood in five different ways. What I'm going to share with you when it says we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that there's only one meaning that this word fear fearfully can possibly have. One of the first ways the word yare is used is describing the emotion of fear. So if we use it in that way, it would mean that God created us fearful. I don't believe that God created us fearful. The other way it can be understood is the cognitive anticipation of evil without any emphasis on the emotional reaction. Okay, so does that mean that God created us uh, fear-seeking, looking for fear in every place and with fear consciousness? I don't believe that either. I know there's people out there that do. Now, then there's another way it can be understood. Talk about righteous behavior, piety, in other words, religious works. So that would seem to mean that God's focus would be on the outer behavior rather than one's heart. Nah, I don't think that fits either. Fourth way, it can refer to formal religious worship. But is a mode of worship really what God's look, cared about, caring about, his primary concern? Jesus had a very different conversation with a woman at a well and said the worshipers that Father is seeking are those who worship in spirit and in truth. There's a fifth way that the word yare can be used, and it's referring to reverence or awe, and that nails it on the head. Another way of understanding Psalm 139.14 is, I will praise you, for you made me in reverence, in your reverence and in your awe. Have you ever thought about that? When God made you, he was in awe. He revered you. He was excited. In your entire forming, 
probably that's not something that many of us have thought about. But I tell you, there's wonderful scriptures. He rejoices over us with singing, with a song. God's love for us is so awesome. What I know beyond a doubt is that God did not create us fearful or to be sin conscious or with a performance-based mindset or intimacy rooted in a religious mold of religious worship. God created us in his reverence and awe. And he still sees us, each and every one of us, all of us in this way today. Romans 4.17, it says about God that God calls the things that see themselves as not as though they are. What religion has taught us is that I look at myself, I see my insecurities, I see my inadequacies, and that's who I am. But God says, that's not what I see. God says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. The word wonderfully, pala in the Hebrew, means to be distinct, to be set apart, to be marked out. Another way of understanding this entire verse here is, I will praise you for I am distinctly set apart and marked for your purpose in your reverence and awe. That's powerful. Goes on and says, marvelous are your works. And the word marvelous is another version of Pela. And essentially it means marvelous, wonderful, amazing. God's works are marvelous. Are you a work of God? God made you. How about your neighbor? Are they a work of God? How about the guy sitting down at the bar, one o'clock at Saturday night, drunk out of his gourd? He's a work of God. And what God says about each and every one of us, that you, humanity, you are my workmanship, and you are amazing. And you know the difference between us sitting here and those sitting on the bar or other places? is hopefully we realize it. But they don't realize it yet. But that day's to come. I love the way that this is presented in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I preached out of this Bible many times. I'd like to quote a little excerpt from Genesis regarding the creation of Adam and Eve. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. <laughs> you look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all his heart. And they were lovely because he loved them. I want to tell you today, God says you're awesome, you're lovely, and it's not because the things you do, it's not because of the things you believe, it has nothing to do with that. It's because you are made in his image and his likeness, and he loves you. 
We're amazing, not because of anything we've done or we will do, but because God made us amazing. And nothing in all creation can change this reality. We're amazing because he made us in his image. This is rooted in the simple reality that in God's reverence and awe, he made us in his image, his likeness. Nothing's powerful enough to change this, and that is still true today. It's been true ever since Adam and Eve. And too often, we fail to see this reality in ourselves and others. So that brings us to one of the important aspects of what I want to share today. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. What if my soul doesn't know this very well? What if I'm having difficulty feeling and believing I'm amazing and marvelous? What if I'm more aware of my shame, guilt, insecurity, inadequacy, my shortcomings, my failures? What if I'm wrestling a barrage of negative thoughts about who I am, unable to love myself, leaving me feeling rejected and disqualified? Those are painful feelings that many of us, if not all of us, have struggled with and maybe even continue to struggle with. In such a state, is it still possible for me to believe that I am amazing as God says I am? Absolutely it is. And to take a closer look at this, we need to take a journey back to Eden. Discovering what happened then and how it still impacts us here and now. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. Their identity was rooted in God. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created. Now, some may argue Adam was made in God's image but Eve wasn't made in God's image. She was made in Adam's image. But scripture doesn't support that. If we look at Genesis 5-2, and this is in the King James Version, and the King James got it remarkably correct here. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. And in the Aramaic, it actually does say that. But if you look in your translations that you use and that I use, you're probably not going to find the actual word Adam there. You're going to find man or mankind. But God called both Adam and Eve Adam in the day that they were created. Their true authentic identity was rooted in God's identity. And this is echoed in 1 John 4.17. 4, As he is, so are we in this world. Our authentic identity in him is a central theme of scripture. It's what Jesus came to seek and save. And John 19.10, it doesn't say that Jesus came to seek he or she that was lost. It says that he came to seek that which was lost. 
Jesus came to seek if Papa's authentic identity was still in the field of the hearts of men. And in his searching, he found that treasure hidden under great depths of Adam, soil, hidden, safely tucked away. He found it, and he saved it. He restored it by revealing himself. It tells us in Scripture that the Logos, God himself, became flesh. He became one of us. He emptied himself of all that made him him God, still retaining it, but became one of us to reveal to us who we authentically are. Again, as I look through Scripture, I see the central theme is about authentic identity. What's God's authentic identity? Sadly, in a lot of religion, it's misaligned, just like in that song that we sang. I love it, Good, Good Father. Many say a very different picture of who God is. But we're on that journey to find, to discover who he truly is. So this is the way God created Adam and Eve. But one day in Eden, the serpent presented himself and lied to Eve. He gave a distorted perspective regarding her true authentic identity in God. The serpent suggested she wasn't fearfully and wonderfully made or as amazing as God declared her to be. He convinced her she needed to do something to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil so she could become what she already was. I don't know about you, but I was taught that the original sin was man's wanting to be like God. But God said, I created you like me. John said in 1 John four seventeen, as he is, so are we in this world. We are his image. That was true of Adam. That was true of Eve. But she listened to the lie. She embraced the lie. And in doing so, she embraced a distorted, false, inauthentic identity that was not rooted in the Father and his love. Why did she believe the lie? Perhaps she questioned her being in God's image because she was made from Adam rather than being made from the dust in the ground. Regardless, for whatever reason, she believed the lie that she had to do something to become what she already was. And what she was was the image of the Father, accepted and loved by God, regardless. And then we see Adam, who is there at her side, joining her in embracing the lie. Adam and Eve listened to the lie and through their reasoning embraced the lie. Their eyes were opened, but their eyes were opened not to the truth, but away from the truth and became open to believing the lie. They began to perceive self, others, creation, and God through a false, inauthentic sense of identity rooted not in God, but in the serpent's lie. They experienced shame and the resulting perception of nakedness, which essentially is separation from God. 
They use their best efforts possible to cover their feelings of shame and nakedness. And those fig leaves just did not cut it. They still perceived God's presence, but differently after the lie. They no longer had the sense of excitement. Father's coming. Let's go talk. Instead, they experienced feelings of fear and separation. They ceased seeing God as a loving father. Instead, they saw him as an angry God, judging and punitive. We need to hide because we don't know what this death is, but we don't want to be struck down by him. Instead of running to God, the one who could restore them, they ran and hid from him. The lie was deceptively powerful, but it was still the lie. If we look at Genesis 3.9, they heard God approaching them in the garden. They hid. God called out to Adam and Eve, where are you? God already knew where they were. He asked because they needed to know where they were. Perceiving their nakedness, they hid. They experienced what God said they would experience in eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They experienced death. The day you eat, you will surely die. God did not say, a hundred years after you eat, you will die. He said, the day you eat, you will die. Genesis 2.17. God wasn't talking about physical death. I don't believe he was talking about spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Well, usually people will say you can't see God. You can't hear God. God's too holy to look on sins, so you're separated. Well, wait a minute, Adam and Eve still heard God, right? They still talk with God, right? They sensed his presence, right? Now, they weren't spiritually dead. They were very aware in their spirit, but in a different way. God wasn't talking about sending him to Sheol either. If he wanted to say any of those things, he would have communicated those things. There was a death that took place that day. And when God said, the day you eat, you will surely die, he was referring to the death resulting from their inability to perceive their true authentic identity, which was found alone in God. The death was a resulting perception of separation, that I am no longer his image. I'm no longer loved. I'm no longer accepted. I don't measure up. I'm shamed. They believed the lie that they were less than who God declared them to be. Adam and Eve became consumed with their failure and shame. And even so, God saw them as he always had through his love. Again, Romans 4, 17, God calls the things that are not as though they are. While Abraham had no descendants, he said, you shall be the father of many nations. God's response to Adam and Eve after this whole ordeal was pure love. But often we don't see it that way, so I'd like to take a brief look at Genesis 3, 21 through 24. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The fig leaves weren't cutting it. God clothed them in animal skins covering their perceived nakedness. 
I believe the garments represented their being clothed in their authentic identity, which was the, uh, uh, the skin of the lamb slain from the very foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8. Have you ever thought that Jesus was a lamb slain before any of us ever existed? It tells us in scripture that he gave his grace when? Before time began. The lie and man's result, their, their, their action on the lie did not take God by surprise. In verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. The word know there is yada in the Hebrew. And it's referring to knowledge and intimate knowledge by experience. It's the same word used that Adam knew his wife and they had a child. Does God have that type of an intimacy with evil? I don't believe that. When God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, he's not saying God intimately knows evil. What he was doing was, he was addressing Adam and Eve's false perspective. That God, as well as Adam, has an intertwined relationship with evil. That was not true. He's addressing their false perception that they have now become what God is. God's not like that. That was a lie about God. That was a lie about them. God did not allow their folly perceptions of identity to hinder his plan for their lives. We see that in verse 23, which you know, is another verse that we've taken a different direction than I believe what God's heart was. If I were to ask you what happened after Adam and Eve sinned, probably most of you would tell me he drove Adam and Eve out of Eden. But what it says in verse 23 is, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to the ground from which he was taken. The Aramaic there, Selah, holds similar meaning to the Greek Septuagint, ex apostello, which is where we get the word apostle from. You see, when God sent them out, he sent them out in his apostolic authority. He sent Adam and out with purpose, with a mission, with a ministry. The same word is used in God sending out Moses, the prophets, and his signs and wonders. God sent them out not as punishment, but God was telling them, your action, the present way you see yourself, doesn't change my plan, my thoughts, my heart towards you in any way. I love you just as I always have and I always will. Nothing can separate you from my love, my purpose for you. My gifts, my calling are without repentance. My plan for you shall not fail. 
As the rain and the snow water the earth, so shall be the word that I am speaking. My word shall accomplish its purpose. It shall not return to me void. Therefore the Lord God apostled him out. Go, be fruitful, fill, multiply in the earth. Then in verse 24, it says what we focus on. It seems like religion always likes to focus on this. So he drove them out. The word drove, akbalo there, it means to push, to throw out. See, I believe what happened there is all Adam and Eve could see was their shame rather than the treasure of God which was still within them his authentic identity. In their eyes, they no longer believed they were able to fulfill God's plan, but God still believed in the plan and in them. God still believes in you. Knowing that his word accomplishes its purpose, like a mother pushing her little chicks out of the nest when they're ready to fly, God pushed his chicks out of the nest. You're ready to accomplish your purpose. What I want to encourage you in today when we look at ourselves and we say, I don't see any good in me. I don't see that I'm awesome. I don't see that I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. All I see is negative. That's all that Adam and Eve could see. That's the same spot. Adam and Eve's faulty perception didn't hinder God's purpose in their lives. And your faulty perception won't hinder God's purpose in your life either. You are amazing. You are wonderful. And that's God's words regarding you. And then we hit the rest of verse 24. And he placed cherubim at the east east of the Garden of Eden. And a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Oh, right there, God's punishing them. You cannot have life. You're going to hell in a handbasket. Now, what does it say? He sent cherubim there to guard what? Not to keep them, but to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, what God was communicating in your state of believing the lie, in your state of embracing the false image about yourself that you're not like me, it's impossible for you to partake of life in that state. He placed the cherubim there to guard the way to life. And there's only one way to this tree, Jesus, who is our authentic identity. In John 17, 3, this is what Jesus had to say about eternal life. You know, so often we hear that, we think about living to get forever, right? Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life's not about living together. It's about knowing him who is eternal and forever. I want to encourage you this day that the lie is never powerful enough to overcome the truth. Its only power is to deceive. 
Adam and Eve embraced the lie, but God embraced the truth. His plan and his purpose for their lives as well as your life, nothing you have done is powerful enough to unravel God's purpose in your life or the guy sitting on the bar stool at 1 a.m. God never ceased seeing any human being in, as being in his image. His purpose remained unchanged. The fall did not result in man ceasing to be God's image. Now, wait a minute. We all know that Adam and Eve ceased being God's image when they fell. Now, God says something different. Genesis 9, 6, and 7. After the flood, which I believe was after Adam and Eve. Correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Anything that has happened since Adam, it has not changed your image, your destiny. You are my image. You are my likeness. My spirit, my breath, my life is in you. The problem is you don't see that. And you don't realize that. You're still my image. You're still blessed. My purpose in you has not changed. Their faulty perception didn't hinder God's purpose in their lives. And neither will it hinder God's purpose in yours. This is how Adam and Eve stopped believing the lie. I'm sorry, this is how Adam and Eve stopped believing their true authentic identity in God. Believing the lie is the same thing stopping us from believing our authentic identity in him today. We have always been amazing just as God has always been amazing. Believing the lie significantly impacts one relationship with God, but it's a one-sided impact on our and not God's. God doesn't believe the lie. He never has and he never will. The good news is that God sees through our perceived messes. He sees us as we truly are, fearfully, wonderfully, and amazingly made. We're his image, and that's never changed. But you may still say to me, I don't have my act together, Tom. Be encouraged, you're not alone. Actually, none of us have ever had our acts together. Adam and Eve didn't have their acts together. Neither did the patriarchs. There are some pretty nasty stories about them, (laughs) if you read your scripture. The same goes for the Israel, the kings, and even the prophets. They didn't have their acts together. The twelve didn't have their acts together when Jesus sent them out. They still didn't have their acts together when Jesus died or even when he ascended. The church didn't have their acts together for the first five years. When they believed the gospel was only for the Jews and not for the Gentiles. And even Peter was afraid to go to Cornelius' household because, oh my gosh, I can't go into the house of a pagan, a heathen. And then we look after that when the Jerusalem leadership finally realized, yeah, the Gentiles can't be saved. Now they're about 10 years after that. They sent men to Galatia. resulting in Paul having to rebuke Peter publicly and the men that came from James and John in Jerusalem. 
They didn't have their act together. Even so, all those that I just mentioned, God still loved them, accepted them, and moved through them. It's not about having your act together. Not having your act together doesn't hinder you. It didn't hinder them. Why do you think it will hinder you? It's never been about you. It's never been about your effort. It's always been about his finished work in you, which was accomplished from the very foundation of the world before you and I ever were. It is in our spiritual DNA, and our spiritual DNA declares who we are. So if you struggle in believing that you are fearfully and wonderfully and marvelously made, I encourage you to do this. Continually remind yourself that you are God's image, and there's nothing you can do to change this reality. Believe what God says about you. And how do you do this? Look to Jesus. Because Jesus is what God believes about you. This is what I've come to realize. When I look at Jesus and when I see Jesus, what I'm doing is I'm looking in a mirror and looking at myself. I'm seeing me as God sees me when I look at Jesus. Jesus came to reveal whom we have always been but never realized. I love how Francois de Toy puts it. Jesus is God's blueprint, God's design of who he declares us to be. So if you struggle today in any of these areas, believing you're awesome, believing you're amazing, let this be your anchor in your journey and embracing the reality of your amazingness and being wonderfully made. As he is, so are we in this world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And Father, I want to thank you for your goodness and your love and your revelation, your grace. I want to thank you for the image that you placed within us. We want to thank you for your love, for your healing and your restoration. And over each and every one of us, I speak the blessing of your life, the blessing of your peace, the blessing of your joy, the blessing of your authenticity, which is ours. And we give the praise and the glory in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, We pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.